this is what's going on tonight. <laughs> Thank she you said, to the person who brought the sales emergency pack backstage. The, the sales emer- emergency pack was delivered by somebody to the stage door. Thank you very much. It was incredibly welcome. It's what's keeping her with us this evening. Sales said, um, what, what music do you think we should walk into? I said, anything by Hot Chocolate, love. Because... <laughs> uh, because that's funny to a woman who's had chronic diarrhoea for 48 hours. <laughs> Thank you, Annabelle. Yeah, for those that don't know, I've had gastro. I was supposed to come over on Thursday and then had to cancel it and then um, came yesterday and I've just been lying down and feeling very sorry for myself. <laughs> oh, I know. However... What she omits to record is that because of her failure to come over on Thursday, I was left alone emceeing the Women in Mining and Resources uh, (laughs) conference yesterday. I did feel really bad about that. (laughs) You don't feel that bad about it though, do you? Actually, fortunately, I had a lovely time, um, so it was fine. And also, how great is it to be in WA? Oh, so nice. It is sublime and to be back in Noongar country after, well, let's not be, you know, unkind about it, but many years of not being able to come here at all is so fabulous. And before we say anything else, we acknowledge the traditional owners, the great Wajak people of the Noongar nation. And I got to hear so much beautiful singing in Noongar yesterday because Gina and Guy were at the Wimwa conference and I'm like, God... So incredible what those two are doing for the Noongar language, which is, yeah, beautiful to hear. So I feel like I have been (laughs) marinating in the beauty of the West and you've been marinating in other things and that's not, you know, (laughs) that's not great. However, we've seated her there in case she needs to... (laughs) It's it's a 50-50 kind of proposition, I reckon, but... So, yeah, may turn into a one-woman show. And, of course, but that's okay because that's what I've been doing for some so days far, now, that's obviously. that's pretty much how it's rolling. Now, here's the great thing about coming to the West. You always just run into somebody who's massively helpful. Uh, exhibit A, the lively person who brought this gnome for us, um, which it. is, yeah. No, don't move. I just feel like, don't bend over. Oh, God. No, no, it's all right. So we are going to do a bit of a road trip because... You know, normally when I come to Perth, I have to go, like, away again because I've got too many children and jobs. But now it's school holidays. Um, so, and we're doing a show in Albany tomorrow night, which we're doing because Jeremy, tour organiser, one night several months ago said, there's an incredibly beautiful arts centre in Albany. You need to go there. And so now we're going there because if you build it, we will come. And... Um, there's also a Gnomesville near there. No, it's not a, a actually. It's, not a, it's, oh, it's it actually a, not. No, it's near... Um, I don't know where anything is because I'm just a ge- geography idiot. So people have been sending us lots of... because we, So we're mm. heading to Albany and then Margaret River and then across. Why don't you let me take this bit because... I think clearly. I should. Because <laughs> it's um, not going to work otherwise. me and Jeremy have been in charge of this bit. Um, so... They keep sending me lovely little itineraries and I'm like with dates and times and other things that make no sense to a person with a brain like mine. So I'm just like, you could be barking at me now, but I love gnomes, so that sounds, that sounds perfect. It's kind of, I mean, 
all of you will know more about it than me. I, I just can't, because people had been sending us in the chat chain group recommendations of places to go. And there was this, someone went to this Gnomesville and then someone else is like, I'm from that region, it's so embarrassing. And it was just <laughs> this kind of, like, and then this discussion ensued that made me think, oh, I better go and have a look at what this is. It's just, it's baffling. <laughs> it's like, it looks like, I've gone to the website. It seems to be. I've gone to, to the website. I've had a look. <laughs> it seems to be this. Will you guys tell me if I've got this right? It's kind of like a town where you take a gnome and drop it off. And there's now like th- thousands. Is this right? There's. <laughs> Is there like a mayor of Gnomesville? Do people, actual people, live there? No. No, there's no people there. Just weird gnomes everywhere. Are there are there public toilets? (laughs) Just asking for a friend. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, it's so so I sent it to Jeremy and went, get a load of this. And then the strangest thing. Suddenly it turns up on the itinerary. But the other strange thing is so I um drove my nine-year-old to school the other day and I left the house and by the time I came back I noticed that there was a gnome in our front garden like it just it was not there when I left and was there when I got back and I wandered into the house and because Jeremy works in this like room that's at the front of the house and the gnome was staring in at him and I went and I said where's that gnome why is there a gnome in our front garden he said I bought it and I said, oh, uh, why'd you do that? <laughs> he said, well, I bought it because I thought it could make a good um, doorstop for holding the back door open, which tends to like slam a bit. I'm like, mm-hmm. And he said, but when it turned up, it was just a plastic gnome. I'm like, sorry, so you ordered it online, <laughs> expecting that you were ordering a concrete gnome <laughs> through the post. <laughs> like, <laughs> how does... So many questions. I said, so anyway, it's no good as a doorstop, so now it's going to be in the garden. <laughs> uh, it's so weird looking. This and evil woman wanted him the second he bought it. She was like, well, that's good. We'll just take it to WA and give it to Gnomesville. Then I did my reading about Gnomesville. I'm like, hey, this is great, because it turns out with Gnomesville, you've got to take your own gnome. Like, I mean, see, see. And he's like, well, I don't know. I, I like my gnome. I'm like, are you kidding? Like, you've got a gnome that's not fit for purpose because it's too portable. And we are now driving across WA and this could be... Anyway. Okay, so let me just check I've got this right. So when we're driving to Gnomesville, so no one lives there. There's not like a main street or anything. So how, so we're just going to start, we're going to be driving through the landscape and we're going to start seeing a few gnomes and then we're suddenly going to see a heap of gnomes. <laughs> Everyone's just nodding. Yep. <laughs> okay. Great. That sounds good. I can't so, wait. <laughs> so when he landed, I'm like, can I confirm that you've got my gnome on board? He's like, wasn't enough room. <laughs> So that's, I put a post in the group saying, look, if anyone's got a spare gnome, they, and look at this, it's a beauty. It is beautifully compact. It is hand painted. It's a very cute little and gnome. It's, and I it's love small, it. And that is important. And we can sign its bum, I think. I think, I think we can sign its bum. 
Because oh, okay. you're supposed to sign it and say where it's come from. Yeah. And we'll just maybe blur the specifics of exactly where it's come from, which is here, <laughs> and just say, well, we came from Sydney and um, we've planted. Where is it from? Oh, I thought someone was yelling me out um, specific information about the the gnome giver dropped the gnome at Gwen's stand and then I sent, well, Gwen sent my nine-year-old daughter off with the gnome to try and find the giver and um, was unsuccessful. So, so <laughs> Gwen has placed it on me. Um, thank you very much. But thank to you the very much. That's incredibly that. kind and it makes nice me a lot happier. Also means that we have another item to cram into the car <laughs> in which we're driving to Albany at absolute sparrows fart tomorrow morning. <laughs> That's true. Which... There was a bit of consternation um, today because I don't know if anyone knows, we've mentioned it I think on the pod, I've started learning the cello and I've just hit the point where my fingers aren't in complete agony all the time from the, you know, because I've got calluses now. So I was constantly having to go to the freezer and just open it and stick my hands in the peas and just go... Oh, oh, oh. Um, and so... I didn't really want to come to WA for two weeks and then not have the cello because I don't want to go backwards and have to go through that. <laughs> so I brought it. <laughs> so Sales is anxious not to lose condition <laughs> on her calluses. <laughs> and so when I... So... I thought it would be fine, right? Because I drive a hatchback and so I can kind of fit it in. Anyway, so I'd had, I kind of had mentioned to Crab and Gwen that I thought I would bring it. And then we had this text exchange today where I sort of thought I'd better come clean with them about exactly what's um, going on. So they asked, what's happening tomorrow? Like, have you got a car, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I have. I said... I'm picking you guys up first thing tomorrow. If you can, leave as much baggage as possible with Jeremy to bring because, you know, cello. (laughs) You know, dot, 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 cello. So please leave all of your worldly goods behind because my cello needs to be in that car. So Crabs replied, I read that aloud to Gwen and after the pause I said cello and she said merch. I'm looking forward to this tense exchange in person. (laughs) So then we started to get worried because I'm thinking, oh, God, there's, you know, Gwen usually has got a lot of merch. This is a bit of a problem. And it's not a very big car that I've hired. And I said, all right, we can do a test, the Savo. I can tell you, though, (laughs) that the cello takes up either half of the boot and and half of the back seat laid down. (laughs) Can you imagine my face as I'm reading this and Gwen's as I'm reading it out loud to her? Or it lays across the whole back seat with the neck of it in the lap of the person in the back. (laughs) Anyway, then I said, I've only got one small carry-on bag. So Sales is like, I'm doing my bit (laughs) to conserve space for this colossal inconvenience that is 100% to do with me and my fingers. I said, um, so if Jeremy can bring your and Gwen's main luggage, we should should be right. Um, And then Crab's reply was, Gwen and I are screaming. (laughs) Crab's gone... 
just to get this straight, so I may lose my legs due to compromised circulation, but your calluses will survive intact. Great. <laughs> and I said, stop making me laugh. I'm going to shit my pants. <laughs> Then I said, it's actually fine having it over your lap. I did it in the car with Lane and Roz last night. That's my parents-in-law who are here at the moment. I did it in the car with Lane and Roz last night. It's quite comfortable. You can rest your arms on it. (laughs) Crab said, oh, okay. So you did it for 20 minutes in urban Perth. So it should also be fine for six hours. (laughs) So that's tomorrow. What do you do for your live show, Lee and Annabelle? Oh, we just mainly uh, just reread text messages that we've exchanged early that day and just absolutely piss ourselves laughing. So it's funny because it's so a winning formula. I had to get the Gold Coast the week before last, and I also took the cello there, which is my first experiment of taking the cello somewhere. And because I'm not lady in the pink top here is just shaking her head, <laughs> and that is absolutely the correct response. It's just like. What? Because I'm not, you know, a professional musician. No, you're not. That's right. (laughs) Let's just... (laughs) Let's just sit with that for a second. How many weeks have you been a cellist? (laughs) About six. (laughs) (laughs) So... But the attitude on it... Because I'm not a professional and I don't play an expensive cello, I just chuck it in the oversized baggage. It just comes up that way, right? But if real cellists, they hire an extra seat next to them and they take their cello on the plane. And it was so funny. So when I took it to the coast, it's funny how, what a talking point it is, like, straight it's away. Amazing. <laughs> it's so fun. <laughs> but, so when I've joined the queue, the do- bizarrely, the very person in front of me in the line had a cello, but was clearly... A proper musician because his was in like a really like you know one of those elite kind of hard case things and it had stickers from all over the world on it and da 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 and he was checking in and putting his cello in a seat and so I was looking at him thinking oh do I recognise you are you from the ACO or Sydney Symphony couldn't recognise him but he was doing the real thing and then I was just checking in my normal stuff but just going I just got to get an oversized tag for this to stick it in oversized and just chuck it down the chute and it's well packed I should add I don't you know it's it's fine. Anyway, um, so, but I could see... Cause Did he you could, get, like, an upgrade for your calluses or anything? <laughs> like, do the calluses travel separately or just with you? <laughs> I could see that he was kind of... He could overhear the conversation I was having with the um, person on the counter. And I could see that he was puzzled because I was getting the full superstar treatment because of my <laughs> day job. And so I can see him going... She's been, this woman's being treated like a rock star, so she must be like some famous musician, but she's about to chuck her cello down the chute. But then, but then it dawned on me later that maybe he was thinking, that's Lee Sales, why is she travelling with a cello? <laughs> so many possibilities. Anyway, um, it was funny. And then the woman said to me, she said something about, um, oh, what a coincidence, that gentleman's got a cello as well. And I said, oh, yeah, but he's a proper musician. And she went, oh, I'm sure you're a proper musician. <laughs> well, when we were in um, Brisbane, of course, a couple of weeks ago, we did have on stage a proper musician and proper cellist. 
Umberto Clarici, who um, we had on stage because he's just been made the um, conductor of the Brisbane Symphony Orchestra, but he is best known as a cellist. And um, he was talking about um, one of the downsides of being a cellist is that if you're serious as opposed to you know, a total jokester. You um, have to carry your... You have to have a cello sitting next to you in the seat. You can't just put it in the hold. So he said, like, unlike those, you know, famous, say, piccolo players or, you know, viola players, he seems to be very down on the viola people, um, he can never, even if he's flying with a really posh orchestra... Never ever fly business class because no orchestra alive will ever spring for two business class tickets. So he's always in cattle with his uh, instrument. But he said that he was flying Etihad to somewhere or other not long ago and his, his cello got an upgrade to first. <laughs> <laughs> but he didn't. <laughs> and obviously... I mean, if you were an Etihad, you know, you'd be like, let's take the stringed instrument because that's going to be low maintenance up in first. <laughs> and he was a bit like, well, uh, okay, well, I'll just get it settled in first and then I'll pop back to cattle. <laughs> I wonder if they would have been like, look, sir, I'm sorry, you'll have to stay in your, des- your designated seat until yeah. you get going. Then if you want to switch out. But the cello, I mean, his cello is worth millions. So yes, true. Yeah. you wouldn't actually want to be separated from it. Although I guess no, no one I guess if it's of... it's not going to get molested in first, is well, it? Well, you'd, I mean, you'd just be like, you'd, you'd be like, no one's getting off this plane until we find that cello. <laughs> well, he said he popped up to visit it and it was one of those, like, I think it was one of those, like, serious, serious first class situations, which I'm sad I've never actually personally enjoyed. But he said that these, uh, the cello had its own hosty like had its own flight attendant and he was like I could just drink the cello's Dom Perignon like (laughs) possibly (laughs) and they just like shoved him back to uh to his yep anyway so we're we're all set for the journey um I am also happy to report while we're whittering on about totally useless detail about our private lives that Jeremy our tour organizer made uh for me a very pleasing and uncharacteristic strategic stumble with like managing this whole trip in that he and my three kids arrived this afternoon in Perth and went to pick up the hire car and um, uh, discovered that he had accidentally booked it to be collected at Brisbane Airport. So, like, 1,000% something that I would do if I were ever trusted with this sort of task, um, still, which I'm not. Um, and so I was like, oh, that's terrible. I'm so pleased. I mean, just, it's nice when your perfectly capable life partner makes a really, you know, bizarre bungle. And, um, uh, hello, darling. <laughs> my nine-year-old's just sitting, yeah, hello. Um, it's obviously, school holidays and everything has turned up. No, your car's in in Brisbane. Are there any other cars? No, no, no other cars. So he started doing this sort of, you know, door-knock tour of rental agencies around the airport. And just shout-out to uh, Kathy at Hertz, who was amazing and incredibly kind and um, basically said, oh, I've got very little left. We've got, you know, this sort of tiny cars and we're thinking oh god you know sales as luggage my luggage because it doesn't fit in our car because of the stupid cello (laughs) etc and then Kathy's gone well hang on a minute I've got this 
monster truck. We're in a monster truck now. <laughs> it is the greatest thing. So a monster truck is what we are, f- well, what my family are following up, the sort of shits and gnomes mobile um, that... <laughs> With the stringed instruments that we'll be travelling in. So thank you very much, Cathy. It hurts. The thing that's funny, if you think that this content so far of this show is How's it going? Is it any? I mean, really? You should have seen what was on the content list um, last week. In fact, Murph, our friend, was having a a laugh at our expense because there was a shot of a caravan in South Australia that had fallen over and Crab was like, well, that just doesn't seem plausible. Murph was like, oh, caravan dynamics. That'd be a good topic for the Perth show. (laughs) And then then we got talking about the queue in England. I was like, that'll be a good one because I actually know a little bit about queuing science. And I do. (laughs) <laughs> At which point I responded with, do you ever look in the mirror and realise that you're about 95% rotary male? Like, that's... <laughs> anyway, um, I'm just not checking the pipe organ because um, Kat Johnston, uh, who's a chatter, is actually in charge of lights here this evening and she's asked us what colour do we want the pipe organ to be and I'm like, green's good, but then I also would like to just change it sometimes just halfway through the show. So can you get, dial us up another colour, Kat? Anything you like. DJ's choice. I hope you wander oh, you again. Oh, now oh, I'm, yeah. Fancy. Hey, Very fancy. This is the greatest theatre. Also, um, earlier when I arrived, or Gwen and I arrived, because I was in charge of the navigating um, in the car and we uh, turned up at the Heath Ledger Theatre, because that's where we were last time we were in Perth. So I'm like, I, I remember where that is. We just go to that theatre. If we get there, I'm like, is this right? No. So uh, we piled all the merch back into an oh, a... Uh, no. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like I said, this is why I'm not trusted with detail. Um, anyway, then we turn up here. We're poking around looking for the stage door, which I thought was at the front, but it was actually in Murder Alley around the corner. And, um, <laughs> and we're just sort of, you know, <laughs> bondering around. And um, then this lovely group of chatters come steaming over and they're like, Hello. Uh, and do you need help? We're like, yes, absolutely, we need help. Where's the stage door? They're like, we know where it is. We'll take you there. The leader of the pack is this woman called Penny. She's like, I know where it is. And uh, so we just fall in with this pack of chatters, and um, and we get round to the stage door. And on the way, I've just like halfway through yesterday, I ripped a fingernail. And you know when you just get catches on everything and it's like massively annoying. I'm wearing a sort of silky shirt, so it's just catching. It's really annoying. So I say to this, because I was planning on just asking here, has anyone got a nail file during the show? And so I've asked this group of chatters, anyone got a nail file? Oh, no, I don't. And then Penny goes, hang on a minute. I might have one in my bag. She's got a diabolical mum bag, of course. She's like digging through it. And, you know, five minutes later, she's like, ha-ha! So I've filed my nails. Thanks very much, Penny. And then as they're just dropping us, um, I learned that this is Penny Shaw. She's an opera singer and uh, podcaster, and she's in a group called Devalicious. Uh, just like, right, so where that I think I found you, Penny. Uh, thank you very much, Penny and friends, for sorting out my hangnail and uh, also... <laughs> Just introducing me to more Perth culture. Look at your face. Just You're the, just like, shut up. Just the merch, um, the, uh, just you mentioning getting the merch out of the car reminded me, actually, if everyone could do me a massive favour, it would help us enormously tomorrow <laughs> if you would sell Gwen out of merch today. 
So if you were thinking, I could do some new tea towels, but these ones could hang in for three more months, can you just get some tonight, please? Because then the cello will be sweet. Well... Gwen says it's been running hot, actually, like the okay. Perth I want it all gone. for the merch. I want every last there is a bit left, I think. fairy wren spoon gone. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I don't think she has fairy wren spoons. Um, this is just such a shakedown, isn't it? Can like I? Just, yeah, we made up the whole story about the cello. There's no cello. Can There's I? no cello. <laughs> <laughs> it's just us in a Range Rover with this small gnome and nothing else. It's just all a massive blur. It's just us in a private jet all the way to Albany. Um, can I just uh, mention the charity that we're oh, supporting yeah. That's tonight? actually like number one on our list to mention <laughs> on our little thing that we put together. Yeah, It's a charity called... Charity right up the top, I think. Exactly. Charity called Teach, Learn, Grow. It helps kids from rural and regional areas because all of the research shows that educational outcomes um, are not equal for kids in remote places because they just don't have the same opportunity and access to resources. So Teach, Learn, Grow offers um, free one-on-one tutoring and mentoring and it's staffed entirely by volunteers and it's all uni students. And so the uni students do it and they give up their uni holidays to actually travel around the state and to meet with kids one-on-one and to assist them and so on. There's about 800 and, well, there was 850 of them in 2021. Um, So it's a really good program and it makes a kind of very tangible difference to the kids that um, are involved with it. So that's who we're supporting tonight. Um, Okay, so back to Q theory, because it is fascinating. It is so I learned a bit about this when I lived in the States. So you would have all seen that amazing cue. Actually, let me read you out. Um, some of you will have seen it, which was a um, it was a kind of thread on social media. Where I someone... love that she's brought cue readings as well. It's not just <laughs> my stray thoughts on cues. It's like, yeah. well, somebody noted, I saw this on social media, and I thought it was such a great analysis of the cue. So it was... Right, everyone, I need to be serious for, for a moment. This is written by somebody in, in London. Because the greatest thing that ever happened is happening right now. I don't particularly care either way about the Queen, but the queue, the queue is a triumph of Britishness. It is incredible. Just to be clear, I don't mean the purpose of the queue. I don't mean the outpouring of emotion or collective grief or the event at the end and around the queue or the people in the queue. I mean literally the queue, the queue itself. It's like something from Douglas Adams. It is the motherload of cues. It is art. It is poetry. It is the cue to end all cues. It opened earlier today and it is already two miles long. They will close it if it gets to five miles. It is a cue that goes right through the entirety of London. It has toilets and water points and websites just for the cue. You cannot leave the queue. You cannot get into the queue further down. You cannot hold places in the queue. There are wristbands for the queue. Once you join the queue, you can expect to be there for days, but you cannot have a chair or a sleeping bag. There is no sleeping in the queue, for the queue moves constantly and steadily day and night. You'll be shuffling along at 0.1 miles per hour for days. There is a YouTube channel, a Twitter feed, an Instagram page, each giving frequent updates about the queue, because the back of the queue naturally keeps moving. To join the queue requires up-to-the-minute knowledge of where the queue is now. The BBC has live live coverage of the queue on BBC One and a red button service showing the front bit of the queue. 
No one in their right mind would join the queue, and yet still they come. Oh, it'll only be until 6am on Thursday. We can take some soup. And at the end of the queue is a box. You walk past the box slowly, but for no more than a minute, then you will exit into the London drizzle and make your way home. Tell me this isn't the greatest bit of British performance art that has ever happened. <laughs> so that, that was is what prompted such a spectacular piece of writing. So fantastic and so true. And it reminded me of when I went to see The Clock, which I loved in London, and the queue of people waiting to get into The Clock. And it was that was interesting watching just because The Clock was about time and so watching the passage of time in that queue was interesting but strangely enough I did I honestly did learn a little bit about queue science when I lived in the US and I can't remember why but it was to do with Disneyland and how what they do it's a combination of it's a mathematical science it's a mathematical field of study but then there's also psychology involved with it as well so the mathematical aspects are there's the arrival rate, which is how many people are trying to join the end of the queue. Um, and then there's the service rate, which is how quickly are you able to move the queue along. And so mathematical people will crunch all of that stuff and go, all right, well, so this is, you know, how you should handle it. And so, for example, you might do like a snaking pattern because you can get more people into the same area. They obviously chose to not do that in the UK because they let it just run as a big, long, um, you know, single line. Um, but then there's also like, a behavioural science aspect to it and so how do you make people feel um, like you know that they're not getting antsy so apparently the studies show 10 minutes is the optimum time for a queue after 10 minutes people start getting fidgety and then there's various things um, the, the keys to a good queue are entertainment distraction and information so if you can like say if you're at Disneyland they'll have things that you know, if you wait, I remember waiting for that. It was like an Indiana Jones kind of ride. And then there's various things happen in the queue. So you almost feel like you're in the ride, like a video will play something or you'll get a surprise by something or other, or you'll be distracted um, to give you a sense that you're progressing when you still actually have a long way to go. So this was deployed in Sydney at the big vaccine hub out at Homebush. And I actually noticed it to the degree that I raised it with one of the people running the place to say, have you actually... Are you, are you, this is like Disneyland, what you're doing here. And they said, we went to LA to study Q science to make it work. And what happens is you'd be in a bit where you'd be in a snaky bit and then you'd get under a kind of tent thing. And so you'd feel like you'd progressed because you'd be like, oh, now I'm in the tenty bit. So I'm moving forwards, even though you were still a long way off. And then, you know, you have the signs that say you, it's 15 minutes till you're at the front of the queue. And so then you feel like, oh, 15 minutes, that's fine. So as long as you have the information. So it's actually, I reckon it's very interesting Thing. I read an, uh, an article that somebody, I think, at the Finn wrote about being, like, just joining the queue on a whim and then thinking, like, joining the queue at 8pm and thinking, oh, it'll be four, four or five hours, maybe we'll get there at midnight. And they ended up getting to the front at something like 6am. Like, it was, like, significantly longer than they thought. And they got to the point where they were sort of in view of the building and so they're like, oh, great, we're super close now. It couldn't be more than an hour. But then when they get close, they then they enter a sort of zigzaggy queue area where oh. they go, oh, hang on a minute. Oh, that's where the zigzag there's like, is. Right. Yeah, there's oh. like four hours left before we, you know. Oh. And so then the mood fell and, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that would be tricky. Because And then that's where the psychology comes in because you also can't 
you know, control human behaviour. So you think it's, you know, for the service rate that it's going to be one minute as everyone passes the coffin, but maybe some people might linger or they might drop something on the floor and so they've been taken... particularly complicated curtsy. They've got a cello. <laughs> I've got a cello with their cello. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was interesting. One of my favourite bits, actually, and I found it oddly touching, was seeing David Beckham in the queue, just you, like a regular You cried, person. didn't you, when you read about that? No, but I did didn't find you? it touching, yeah. It did make... Did you well up a little bit? It did move me. Right. I don't think I welled up, but I don't know, that was pre-gastro. I don't yeah. really know. I can't remember. It's all a blur. Um, no, but it was just, I thought it was really touching that somebody of that level of fame just stood in the queue without security or anything. Okay, so what I want to know is, and I, I didn't read very deeply about David Beckham being in the queue. I noted <laughs> it in a headline, I thought, and I thought, oh, interesting. But like... What was the distorting... I mean, sorry, as you are, of course, a Q scientist now, so <laughs> I feel I can level this inquiry uh, to you with confidence. Um, what was the distorting effect of David Beckham in the Q? Oh, that would have been fascinating because can you imagine turning around and going, I think that's David Beckham? <laughs> like, because I think, wouldn't your first impulse to be... It would be, well, that can't be David Beckham because he would... He He'd would be get chop it in, surely. Yeah, he just would to get sort of to hover he over would the get coffin to push and then, into the yeah. queue. Like, I wonder, did they allow anyone to push into the queue? Like, were like, say for example, if members of cabinet wanted to go, were they allowed? Like, was there an, a one-hour window where people were allowed to go in who didn't have to queue? Surely, if they allowed cabinet that. have another later opportunity to lurk around weirdly next to that coffin, though. Like know. anyone who's invited to the funeral, for instance. And also, like, how tall was that thing that the coffin was on? I just spent the whole time that I was watching the funeral, which wasn't a huge amount of time, just feeling absurdly anxious that the whole thing was just going to fall over. <laughs> um, or that always, the orb would roll off. I've always had a bit of a soft spot for David Beckham after listening to um, – it used to be called River Cafe Table 4. It was a podcast. Now it's called Ruthie's Ruthie's Table 4 or something. And um, she has this restaurant in London called River Cafe and then she interviews people who come to the cafe and talks to them about their relationship with food and what they like to eat and, you know, blah, blah. And it's always really, really interesting. And David Beckham was on it and he was – I've never really given David Beckham a great deal of thought other than that I just have a vague impression of them as being kind of high maintenance. And he was so, so not. He was a very chilled out guy whose, you know, most favourite meal was still this very working class British, I hadn't heard of it, but, you know, English people would know what it was, but it was something that his mother um, kind of cooks. What do you mean, like some sort of... Oh, what, like Toad in the Hole or something? Something like that. I forget what it was now, but it, to me it How sounded How could you forget repellent. the name of a, like, <laughs> what is it? Oh, I just... listened to it ages ago. I only thought of it because when I saw David Beckham in the, in the line and I thought, oh, yeah, that rings kind of true with what he sounded like. And his nan used to cook something that he particularly liked. Um, anyway, he, and he said in this podcast that he was quite accepting of the fact he's quite a foodie and he loves cooking and he really enjoys going out for a great meal, which he said he'd learnt over time because he hadn't grown up with wealth and then now he's extremely wealthy and he can eat in the best restaurants in the world and so he said he felt like he wanted to learn about food to appreciate it more um but he also was completely open and said and I'm resigned that I'm married to someone that will just eat the same thing every day of her life for the rest of her life what, posh yeah she just has like steamed fish and steamed veggies that's what she that's all she eats really yeah so and he was like that's fine 
it's good. I don't mind. I'll just eat what I eat and she can eat what she eats. And he was very well, do you he think just when they go to some super fancy restaurant, he just orders off the menu and she's like, just steam fish, make me steam fish. <laughs> yeah, probably. Please. Yeah, I, th- I guess so. Or yeah. I once did a cooking class with Peter Gordon, who's um New Zealand chef that we claim as Australian because he's so great. And um <laughs> and he opened up this restaurant in London called I think it was called Sugar Reef. Um, and it was like one of these restaurants that became super aggressively fashionable overnight because Madonna went there. And then it was like, oh, my God, everybody's got to go here. And anyway, in the course of this cooking class that my friend Wendy and I did with him um, in Melbourne, I think it was, he told this hilarious story about how one night that absolute zenith of this restaurant's mad, mad popularity, um, Donatella Versace arrived with her sort of entourage and um, the maitre d's gone out and, you know, hello, how are you? And she's sort of said, okay, uh, here's what we want. And she had a teenage daughter there who wanted, you know, a warm carrot or something and, and she wanted a, you know, steamed piece of fish and then, you know, and they went around and it was sort of like nothing on the menu. It was just like... <laughs> And the maitre d's was like, ooh, oh, and went back and saw Peter Gordon in the restaurant, in the kitchen, and just went, oh, my God, like, Donatella Versace's here, and she's ordered all this mad stuff. What shall I do? And Peter Gordon said that he said to this guy, okay, just go back and say that um, I'm very pleased to have her here, and um, while while I've got her, there's a pair of jeans that I saw in the um, Versace shop recently, and I would love to order those, but, like, without any of the, like, <laughs> stud things up the side. And with... <laughs> and apparently... When this message was delivered, she just laughed and went, oh, my God, that's hilarious. Oh, I'm sorry, we'll order off the menu, but my daughter would still like a warm carrot. <laughs> it wasn't warm carrot, it was like a cut-up apple or something, you know. Oh, anyway, great response, I thought. Yeah, yeah. but bold. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Okay. Is that it? Have we got anything else to talk about? <laughs> no, we do. Um, um, well, I, I feel like I've talked a fair bit, so I feel like I should let you... <laughs> Yes, okay. Um, I wonder if I can talk about, I mean, oh, I was actually, we got distracted when you were talking about um, Q science, but it reminded me like that whole kind of phenomenon about um, grief in Britain reminded me of like one of my favourite books of all time, which is called Watching the English by um, an anthropologist called Kate Fox. And she's she wrote this book as after, a, you know, a career as an anthropologist, she decided to turn her anthropologist's eye on her own people and it's the most fascinating book because it it starts off with um her conducting an experiment um to test her own um responses to one of the great British fears of all time which is bumping into somebody and not apologizing to them um (laughs) and so she was aware of the theory that like English people will always apologise even if you bump into them. And so she decided to conduct an experiment. This is like how the book opens, by going to, I think, Waterloo Station and just deliberately bumping into people and not (laughs) apologising. And she said that this whole prospect was so anathema 
to her very being that she had to have like a double whiskey or something oh, beforehand because yeah. she was so freaked out. But she's determined to do it. And indeed, about 95% of people apologised to her. <laughs> I just love the thought of this woman, you know, trained for years to now just go and smash into people at Waterloo. But she, um, it's such a cool book because it also goes through chapter by chapter all this amazing stuff like she, it's heavily about the class system in the UK. and Is she English? Yes, she's English, oh. yeah, yeah. And, um, and actually, she's married to that writer, Henry Marsh, who wrote the book Do No Harm. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. He's a neurosurgeon who wrote that absolutely incredible book about, you know, how to deal with failure and risk in um, that highly charged enterprise of being a neurosurgeon. I think I interviewed him or and I saw him at a writers festival and only realized when I was reading up more about him that he's married to Kate Fox who wrote this amazing book that I love anyway getting distracted but um there's also all these chapters on what you can tell about people and how they identify in the British class system by looking at the flowers that they have in their gardens the cars they drive the state of disrepair of the cars they drive because she observes that if you have a really messy, clapped-out car, it means you are either working class or you are super upper class. Oh. It's just this really... Because you're it, used to somebody else cleaning it up for you or you just don't care about your possessions. No, she what says the, that in the sort of super upper class, there's a kind of like an, an absolute allowance to kind of be, be shambolic. And- yeah, yeah. And it's absolutely fascinating. Anyway, there's all sorts of stuff like what do you call... Do you call, you know, the evening meal, do you call it dinner or do you call it tea? You know, that's a big kind of marker apparently. Anyway, oh, it's fascinating. I read it when I was living in the UK just going, oh, my God. Because <laughs> I was constantly running up against sort of class or or just customs that I wasn't yeah, well, that, really That's why I asked if she with. was English because it sounds like a book that you'd have to be almost an outsider to bring... Well, I think she might just be a quite a talented anthropologist, I guess, and, you know, able to notice, like, that wasn't actually sledging her there, but it sounds a bit sledgy, doesn't it? Yeah. But it served the purpose. <laughs> hey, hey um, Katie, do you reckon you could grab me some water, please? Would that be all right? Thank you. This That's is Crab's daughter, by the way. This is why we breed them. children, just <laughs> yeah, so they can right. bring us things. So I have been, um, you know, because we are in the West, I was sort of, I always like to try and dig around and read some locally relevant writers. And I've just, I'm just halfway through a new book by Holden Shepherd. Is that a, like, is that a, yeah. It's great. So Holden Shepherd, hi, Kate. Oh. This is my daughter. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, darling. <laughs> anyway, apart from just thinking, oh, <laughs> cartwheel. <laughs> if you feel comfortable to do a cartwheel. <laughs> <laughs> L- 
like a cup of tea about 5.30 a.m. too. Thanks, love. <laughs> anyway, this, this um, book is called The Brink and it's, um, it's this bunch of schoolies who are going on, you know, levers after the end of school and it's just incredibly tense because, like, the principal character is this very nervous boy called Leonardo who's got an incredibly domineering mother and he's accidentally got into a car with all the cool kids going to levers and so... Because he used to be friends with Jared, who's like the sort of head honcho of the cool kids. and um, But Jared cut him dead as soon as they got to high school. And so now he's come on like sort of drunk holiday by mistake with all these A-type people and he's constantly having a panic attack. It's quite tense to read, but like it's... It's superbly written and um, I'm really interested in the kind of the boundary between young adult fiction and grown-up fiction because, like, it's quite, there's some quite, you know, advanced sexy concepts and stuff in the book. So I'm definitely not giving it to Kate. Probably give it to my 15-year-old for sure to read. But, like, I love it when people who are, you know, I think for a long time there was a bit of a YA fiction is kind of like a bit of a phone-in sort of thing. So not true. Like, there's some, like, incredible young adult fiction writers and this is, like, A-class writing for a younger audience. Is it funny or just kind of taught? It is. Oh, it's definitely, like, you sort of, you recognise kind of, tropes of teenage brutality behaviour in there and you're like, oh, that's just sort of blackly funny. But um, it's, you know, it's it's quite tense. And then the, the perspective changes. So you get to hear from like the sort of Queen Bee girl's kind of friend and then um, also the um, the kind of alpha male's friend who is secretly gay but not really um, admitting it to himself or to his friend. So, yeah. Right. Anyway... It's awesome, yeah. You said it was called The Brink. It's called The Brink. Oh, Because um, they kind of get diverted from their destination. They end up on a deserted island altogether. I haven't finished it yet. I went, um, because I've got a bit more time to myself these days, I went to the cinema the other week and saw Good Luck to You, Leo Grant, which is that, yeah, right. So... So everybody's heard of this except for me, as per usual, like I'm the last. So what is it? Oh, it's that new, it's Emma Thompson and she's um, a woman. Oh, I just know that as that new Emma Thompson movie where she turned up in Australia by accident to the launch. Yeah, because she apparently, she she apparently really loved it and is a real believer in the film. So she was um, heavily doing a lot of publicity touring to try to get attention. Good on her. Don't I just, I love Emma Thompson. Oh, I love Emma Thompson. That's why I went to see it, just because I love Emma Thompson. So... so if you saw it and you liked it, just clap. Did everyone like it? Yeah, right. Yeah, it was – do you know what? I actually thought – so it basically – I don't know if you know much about it. So it's um, – well, I Emma, think we've pretty much – we've absolutely established that I know very little about it except, oh, new Emma Thompson film that I haven't seen. So Emma Thompson's a woman who I think is retired. She was a teacher. She was married to the same man for years. He's um, died, so she's a widow. And she she's only ever slept with the one person. She thinks she's not ever had good sex, so she hires this young sex worker to come and have sex with her. And she's very – his name's 
the actor's name's Daryl McCormack, and he's this absolutely gorgeous-looking young guy. And so it kind of – it all unfolds pretty much with the exception of like maybe one scene in um, – one or two scenes in a hotel room, which is the room that she's hired for them to come and meet. And a lot of it is her – the kind of lead-up to it because her she's obviously very nervous. And it's really interestingly done because actually you don't – there's no – very little – Actually, I don't think there's any. I'm just trying to think sex. It or it kind of never goes into that. You're aware that they are having sex and that's not a spoiler because premise of it, she pays someone to have sex. Um, but they don't – it's not titillating in that regard, if you know what I mean. Um, so it's more about, I guess, her psychology and then her relationship with this young guy. It really struck me when I was watching it that it would have worked – incredibly well as a play because the, it's so heavily dialogue driven and the actions all combined in this confined to this one location the kind of message and you know plot development is kind of predictable like you know where it's going to go you know she's going to come to have greater self acceptance of herself blah 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 and <laughs> and that's a good message it's a positive thing it's a good message um, what if she's tried the cello at all? I'm just saying it's pretty <laughs> Just saying it's pretty well telegraphed where it's going. But the thing that obviously makes it, as in all Emma Thompson films, is how amazing Emma Thompson is. And I just think nobody does, as well as Emma Thompson, that line between being a strong person yet really vulnerable. She just absolutely nails that quality. And I just think she's also just getting more and more and more beautiful. Like She just looks unbelievably beautiful so um I just think she's just a phenomenon so I really enjoyed it um so yeah did you ever read that book of Ian McEwan's called On Chessel Beach yes it's just it's actually one of the most intense books I've ever read about two people not doing it like (laughs) it is and it's almost unbearably tense about a newly married couple that go to Chessel Beach for their honeymoon and essentially for like I don't know, 200 pages, it's not a long book. It's just how complicatedly they screw up their wedding night and yeah. buy, and nothing happens. Like just, <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. I, just a, a combined anxiety and overthinking. It's just, it's a tricky book to read. Was it's, Emma Thompson the judge in that film of Ian McEwan? Oh, the Children Act. Yeah, I thought you were going to raise that when you said... No, but oh. actually that's a much more relevant book to raise from, she was, the, <laughs> from the McEwen genre. <laughs> Sales wins again. <laughs> the well, faux segue from Crab. That's a fantastic book and the film adaptation of that is actually really great and Emma Thompson plays a judge who ha- she's having big marriage issues. Her husband's kind of walked out on her. And at the same time, she's hearing a case that involves a kid who's a Jehovah's Witness who needs to have a blood transfusion and his parents are refusing. And so she's meeting with the kid to try to make her decision about what to do. And again, she just, you know, is so superb. Strong woman, yet vulnerable. Strong. Once again. Yet vulnerable. Getting a bit boring, Emma Thompson. <laughs> like, just need her to be more violent or something in the next film. Um, speaking for Films, as as part of my localised content trawl, I actually watched this amazing documentary made by a filmmaker who I think is in the audience tonight, Ella Wright. 
<laughs> so I got an email like months ago um, from Ella saying, hey, I've just made this documentary about a local uh, theatre company called The Last Great Hunt. Oh, everyone's just gone. Oh. Uh, and... I thought, oh, that's oh, like I don't, I haven't, I don't, I'm not aware of that theatre company, and I will. And I thought, oh, I'm, I'll watch that, and then like we'll talk about it in Perth. And I have indeed watched it, and so it's the most magical. Who here is a, a familiar with the work of the Last Great Hunt, this Perth theatre company? Yeah, all right, there's fans. Um, so it's like a full kind of a company that kind of creates plays, not from a script that you know. How plays are normally like somebody writes a script and then a theatre company goes, oh, I'll produce that. This is kind of like um, an evolutionary theatre company that just get together and do just play around with lights and cameras and just having fun and then grow a play out of it. And so that's what this film is about. It's called Stage Changes. And it's um, such a fascinating... A, everybody in the company is just fascinating and adorable. You just sort of love them, but just watching this production grow out of nothing beyond a few people just like getting, you know, cardboard boxes and crawling around and being upside down and what happens if we squirt, you know, droplets around and then try and project images on it. Like it's just kind of a fascinating thing to watch. Am I explaining this well? No, I'm not. It's um, anyway, but they're kind of being chased by this sort of big Edinburgh production company and in the end you watch this show which is called in the end it's called Lenore um, grow from nothing to just this full on-stage production and I love this this moment where one of the actors is interviewed and he's like super supportive but he's like yeah that's really it's a bit challenging because you know quite often often when you're in a play you get a script and um and and then you just say the things that are in the script, whereas this is more you sort of turn up and see what happens. It's just like, you think, oh, my God, it sounds terrifying. But the, the show in the end is sort of this show about an undisclosed foreign country where it hasn't rained forever and um, it's about the rain coming and they're all wearing these sort of like 1980s sort of wigs and makeup and... It's also the show is the making of a film, so they're like all carrying cameras, and it's bonkers and fantastic. But it's, so it's very beautiful, and um, and it's all the dialogue is carried out in gibberish, <laughs> except it's a language that is sort of designed, like they've designed the language. It's a cross between sort of Swedish and Afrikaans. Look at your face. You're like, this sounds amazing. <laughs> it's so incredible to watch this ridiculous concept just sort of come together like a flock of starlings. It's just... Well, you, you were saying at the back, there's something else that's been done in gibberish recently. <laughs> what was... Yes, I, I, yes, I did. So, it's so just a thing now. If you want to... I'll tell you where, you want it, where if you want to see Stage Changes, the film, um, you can stream it on a platform called iWonder.com, which is like an, I think, Australian doco streaming thing. And I think they do a, one of those two-week kind of suck it and see things for free. So... Have a look. I mean, I probably haven't done it justice by 
describing it in such a bizarre way, but it's like, it's a beautiful piece of filmmaking. And I know that Ella, the filmmaker, she took eight years to film this, right? Like, it's a long process. And in the terrifying final sequences where the show is actually on and there's only 48 hours to go and they're kind of like, we haven't quite finished devising this scene yet. And everyone's like, oh, God. Um, Ella, at that point, the filmmaker, has a three-month-old baby. Uh, <laughs> She's shooting this film. So, like, uh, when I found that out, I'm just like, Ugh, oh, I don't know exactly what it's like. But anyway, I wonder. You can you can go and enjoy the tension of that um, concluding st- – also, also, the um, artistic director of the show injures his back very early on and is just on pillows – for most, you could feel the pain. Anyway, it's marvellous. But the other thing, um, I'll interrupt you before you interrupt me, uh, is there's this film called Nude Tuesday, which is also um, in total gibberish. Yeah. And it's by, um, it's got Jerome, what's his face, from Flight of the Concords in it. Listen to my oh, excellent yeah. sourcing here. Oh, God. Um, oh, it's but, just said his name to us out the back. I know. Oh, oh it's, what's his name? Jermaine Clements. Clements. Yes, thank you. This is my 15-year-old being useful now. Thank you. Um, And that is a film that is conducted all in gibberish too. Oh. Oh. I know that, like, I can see your face just going, well, that sounds like a stupid idea. But the funny thing is... It could be good if well executed. It could be great. As long as... I actually... It was remarkably... It was subtitled. I trust Jermaine Clement. Yeah. So I'm sure it's great. Just not me, necessarily. (laughs) Um, But there's something... I don't know. I found this watching the Stage Changes doco as well. Like, it's remarkably easy to adapt to gibberish plus subtitles. Obviously, the subtitles make it a lot easier. (laughs) But you know that thing when, like, when you're watching Borgen and then... After about one episode, you're convinced that you can actually speak Danish? No, I don't know that. Are you just like, tak for den. I can speak. I can speak Danish now. There's something liberating and comforting about gibberish, and I love the fact that, like, particularly, I love that the last great hunt people have got together and like done lessons on the gibberish that they're like. They actually rehearsed key items of. Of, you know, vocab. But then is it still gibberish? Because once you've actually imposed, like, a linguistic structure, is it still gibberish? My impression was that once you establish a few speech patterns, then you can – and some words that really, like – like, I think, like, in – uh, in Nude Tuesday, which is set in a kind of like a sex camp that's a nudist camp where couples go to revive their sex lives. Like, it's completely bonkers. But – you do start to feel like you understand the gibberish language. And they've got some regular, like, you know, high is like, hey. So it's like a bit Swedishy as well. <laughs> and you feel like you might be possibly in Ikea with a lot of <laughs> naked people. Um, I, lo- I love that. Look at you. Just like, ah, ah. This is the international lease sales sign for, like, what you are talking about is nuts and I'll be having no truck with it. I'll be about to just tell you about something else that I read that's sensible. Is that where we're about to go? <laughs> when you were talking before about um, 
the piecing together of something reminded me of a thing I watched on ABC iView recently called Anatomy of a String Quartet, and it's um, our mate Richard Tonietti. See, we're back on sales territory now. <laughs> it's our mate Richard Tonietti and three of the other principals from the ACO, and they're performing a string quartet, and they kind of pick it apart for you and explain a bit about the music, but also just how do you make it work as a quartet and what does it involve? It was really, really interesting. It only goes for about half an hour. But if you've ever been curious about that, it's really well shot. And um, all of them explain their own instruments and what their own instruments do and how they fit in the quartet really well. It's good, it's good for a layperson. And, and professional musicians like me. I was like going to say, wow. <laughs> and why were you watching that, Sales? <laughs> so um, I was um, – Yeah, it was great. I had a cup of coffee with like, a person with a brain the size of a planet this morning, Sarah Pierce from the new radio telescope SKA arrangement, just one of the smartest people I've ever met. And I was telling her about your issue with the having to preserve your calluses. Obviously, I've got a dog in this fight because I'm the person who's going to have to spoon that springed in, stringed instrument all the way to Albany. And she said, huh, why doesn't she just get a mobile fretboard thing, like a small fretboard and just like... Just, you know. <laughs> wow, that's actually an interesting idea. Well, because... Right? But is there such a thing? Does anyone know? Oh, there is. Okay. Every single person in the audience is going, yes, that exists. It's... But it's also to do with just the actual practice of things like, that I wouldn't understand. It's, <laughs> it's like, it's more complicated than that, Crab. <laughs> um... I've got to tell you, learning, I don't know how many people have attempted to learn a new skill later in life. Oh my God, it's so humbling. It's really difficult. I actually don't know how anyone, hats off to anyone who's learned a musical instrument later as an adult and you don't know anything about music, like you, that you're going from scratch in terms of reading music. And it's got to be harder, right? Like, oh, I, I mean, at least for me, I don't have to worry at all about anything to do with the music because I can sight read the music, it's all fine. All I have to worry about is the actual playing of the instrument. If I had to also be going, okay, G, B, D, like there's no way I think that I would persist with it. Are you any good? No, I'm terrible. It's, but I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to do is to, to um, accept that I will be terrible for a long time and to just go with that because if you, if you're too judgy on yourself, you just won't do it because you can't possibly pick up an instrument and then play it well straight away. You're going to be really terrible straight off. So I just, you know, do my scales and, you know, whatever piece I'm learning and I just accept that it doesn't sound that great. And it's really strange because some days it, I'll go, oh, that actually sounds vaguely okay. The difficulty with the cello is there's no frets. So you're having a stab, you know, kind of in the dark as to where you think your hand needs to be going. And so sometimes if that's off, it's excruciating. And I feel like because I do actually know music reasonably well, I can like even slightly off, I find it really difficult to hear myself doing it, but then I just can't fix it because I don't, you know, and then I get all tense and then the bowing's destroyed and then it gets worse. And so the only solution is you have to try to not be judging yourself and just going, oh, this is so terrible. So Um, you're actually a person learning the cello who's just annoying yourself more than you're annoying. Yes, but I'm trying to just be like enjoying. Do you ever shout at yourself? Keep it down! (laughs) 
but I'm trying to just kind of enjoy the process. And it's made me realise actually, and you'd probably be similar, that most of the stuff, I think when you get older, most of the things that you're challenging yourself at are things that you can do fairly well. And so you're challenging yourself at the end of Okay, so say if you're cooking a cake, you're doing, am I going to be cooking an okay cake, an amazing cake, or a brilliant cake? And so, or if I'm doing an interview at work, it's like, you know, it's not a question of can I execute this, it's how, you know, well will I execute this? Whereas I'm at the stage of like, can I execute this? And so that, it's it's actually great because it's not a... Um, muscle that I've kind of stretched for quite a while. So it's it's difficult because it's, as I say, it's humbling, but it's also um, really interesting. As a person who's amazing at everything, it's a, <laughs> it's terribly uh, novel to find something <laughs> at which one does not excel. I, just, I, <laughs> I wouldn't know how that feels, Lee. <laughs> so, <laughs> so before we run out of time, I have been watching a few classics actually so I think when we're maybe at the Brisbane show or somewhere maybe we recorded <laughs> a podcast. you just watched The Godfather you're like yes. it's actually amazing. <laughs> yeah so since then I've watched The Godfather too. No! <laughs> yeah oh man that was it was amazing. <laughs> uh, it was really incredible particularly because I'm a massive fan of The Sopranos and so I was able to go oh, right, okay, they've borrowed this kind of stuff from The Godfather Part 2. So a few thoughts. One is, um, did it, was anyone ever able to – see, I because I, I hadn't seen that, I've always just watched Al Pacino and he's best been Al Pacino, but now that I've seen him as Michael Corleone, I think did, – did anyone – was anyone ever able to watch Al Pacino and not think that he was Michael Corleone? Well, I think before he was Michael Corleone, that happened a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but but he was just so seemed like that he like James Gandolfini and Tony Soprano. It's like you just can't even fathom that that person's anyone else other than that actual person. He was just so mind blowing. And also, he gave me a new power move. I've got a new power move out of that, which is to add to this one. <laughs> Which is the existing sales power move, one of which I'm aware. He did this thing all the time where someone would be like kind of... (laughs) No, it's the the folding. (laughs) Let let me show it. You just aren't doing my power move. She does it better. It's It's like this. Doesn't... Um, Doesn't necessarily work quite so well with the hot pink cat's eye glasses with, no. the, with the leopard sidearms, but, you know. So many power moves I've figured out involve, and I'm no good at it because obviously I'm, I don't do anything slowly, it involves being slow and deliberate. It's very hard to do. Anyway, so um, Michael Corleone was doing this thing where someone would be going, asking him something or saying something to him that would be really annoying to him, and Al Pacino, so they'd be talking, let's say, where you are, and Al Pacino would go... And he wouldn't even really move his head. He would just move his eyes. And it was like, I have so much contempt for you that I can't even be bothered to move my head. I'm just going to move my eyes. And it was just such a great power move. Um, And then the scene where Diane Keaton, Kay, says to him, 
he they're having difficulties and and he says you know well you just haven't been yourself since you lost the baby and she's like you are so stupid and and you know unobservant Michael I didn't lose the baby it was an abortion and she's like screaming in his face and it just reminded me of the Sopranos at the end of season four um, Tony and Carmela have this fight and Carmela is screaming at Tony that she's been fantasizing about one of the henchmen in the gang and it's really interesting because. As an, a viewer of the film, you know more about these women's husbands than they do because you've been privy to all of their activities that they're involved with and the wives kind of are turning a blind eye. So when the women are saying these, the most inflammatory things they could possibly say to these men, you are just quivering as the audience member because you know what the men are capable of and so you're just thinking, oh, I cannot believe that you are saying that to Michael. Oh, my God. Um, and so that was incredible. And then also the Tony Soprano Christopher relationship and how that ends. I won't spoil it, even though it's years old. Get, please watch it if you haven't. For the love of God, is there a person um, alive who doesn't know how this ends? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Michael Corleone and his brother Fredo. How that ends? It just it was just Tony and Christopher. Um, so yeah, I've, I thought it was, and just the kind of. Um, it's a simple yet incredibly interesting idea, which is to have a double narrative where you've got the father's life and you're going back and watching the father at the same age and then you're going and watching the son um, and you're just intercutting between the two lives of the two men. Um, so, yeah, I absolutely loved it. And then that put me on to Diane Keaton because I was thinking, gee, Diane Keaton's had an interesting career and done a lot of stuff. So I thought, I'm just going to go rewatch Annie Hall to see how does that stand up. I just would like to see a little like just a my day by lee sales <laughs> where you just potter around voicing these thought tracks like, we're just like hmm, i might now just watch and read everything that's ever been said and filmed of uh, diane keaton it's the beauty of not having to go to work at the moment i can just go hmm, i might just go on a diane keaton thing today um so annie hall it it definitely stands up it's it's a great film she's fantastic um it's funny I was laughing aloud all of the rest of it but I think we've had this conversation before it's very hard to watch things once the people in them and of course now I'm talking about Woody Allen once the people in them have had some major buzz or controversy or issue in their real life it's so difficult to watch the film and not be think when they say things you think oh so every time that Woody the Woody Allen character is talking about women or he's being a bit persistent in hitting on somebody or whatever you, you kind of you jolt it out of the film reality into back into real life and thinking about then Woody Allen Pretty unfair on Diane Keaton, really, isn't it? Because it's like the film it's kind is of her film, like, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, it's his film too. Like he, they're both great in it. So yeah, it did. It did stand up. But she was so um, she was so so highly sought after in the seventies. I didn't realise how kind of because it's a bit before my era. I didn't realise how you know people how many people kind of adored her and wanted her and things and how massive she was well I guess people were com completely tribal about Woody Allen films as well because mm. it's a kind of divisive format people were like either super into Woody Allen or super annoyed by Woody Allen yeah so. it's a very particular I can see that it's a very particular kind of thing like and he's always you know Woody Allen in everything right it's like Jack Nicholson like I love Jack Nicholson and I just want Jack Nicholson to act like Jack Nicholson, if you know what I mean, when I see him in something. I don't that want him to That must be very stretch. restricting for Jack Nicholson. Like, <laughs> he's like, no, no, that's another person that if I ever meet in real life I have to be all kind of like, rad rum. <laughs> like, here comes Johnny. 
The other classic I recently watched, which I watched with my kids, was Ferris Bueller's Day Off, um, which was great and which they really enjoyed, um, although I think the little one got some ideas about how to fake his sick days better. <laughs> but it was Clammy funny. hands. <laughs> yeah. It was funny because it also stood up and it reminded me often the reason things really work is because the themes are so universal. Like, say, the picture of Dorian Gray and things like that. And the theme of Ferris Bueller, which is that you have a sibling that get, gets away with everything, it's such a great, relatable kind of theme, and even for kids today. So I think that was what hooked my kids into it. But interestingly as well, um, watching Ferris Bueller as a grown-up as opposed to when I last saw it, you know, when I would have been 15 – Oh, Ferris Bueller is an annoying little brat and you would not want... You are so the Jennifer Grey character. Like, you you absolutely are and you would be making out with Charlie Sheen. Hey, can I just just press pause because I just want to let you know it's 8.45. So um, this is just... There's well, a public service announcement. Okay, public service announcement. <laughs> I didn't tell my parents-in-law I was going to do this. My parents-in-law are here. They have to go to the airport to pick up my kids and their father. And I told them the show would be over by 8.45 and that they'd have no trouble at all making it to the airport on time. And, of course, it's never going to end on time. So I just want to say, Lane and Rose, you can leave. <laughs> where, where, where are they? Where are, can I, we have where a, are they? I mean, Where's Lane and Rose? Where are they? Wave, wave, wave. Where Hang are on, you? where are Don't they? Don't feel targeted in any way, obviously. Where are they? Oh, there they oh, are. Oh, there they are. <laughs> Come here, Liz. <laughs> Thank here's you. Here's to terrific grandparents yep, here's everywhere. Here's to terrific grandparents. Who Thank do you. this sort of great stuff and um, obviously <laughs> don't mind. To be honest, Lane and Rose, I mean... They picked you up from the airport last night too. Well, and they'd come in from Brisbane and so they picked me up at half past nine, which felt like half past 11 to them. And so they very kindly came to get me. And then I hadn't told them I had a job. (laughs) But because they've known me for 30 years. If you didn't hear that, uh, Lee had also not briefed them that she was (laughs) travelling with a cello. (laughs) But because they've known me for 30 years, when I walked out with it strapped on me, Lane just said, oh, you've got a cello. (laughs) Anyway, Ferris Bueller. So Ferris... Back to Ferris Bueller. Does anyone else need to get to the airport or is everyone cool? (laughs) This is the last thing that we'll let everyone go. Ferris was massively annoying and he's he's very irresponsible and you wouldn't want your children hanging out with him. Cameron's parents were quite right to distrust him. (laughs) But, But Matthew Broderick, he is... No wonder it was a huge film because Matthew Broderick is so great. And so this kid who's actually a manipulative little brat, you just adore him because Matthew Broderick is so adorable and hilarious and charming. It's it, it, Matthew Broderick, it's like um, Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone, which I think I've made the same point that I watched that with the kids and I was like, well, that's why that kid became a superstar overnight because he was just the most adorable thing ever. Matthew Broderick just made Ferris Bueller the most appealing, winning, likeable kid so that even though he was being manipulative you still just loved him like yeah it was just a tour de force of a performance I'm just wondering whether you should ever be allowed to take time off again like I mean it's just (laughs) (laughs) Lee Sales watches a series of old movies and comes to the same conclusions that everybody else has come to (laughs) but will absolutely share them at length with you
You are dangerous with time off. See, both of us are now on leave and it's obviously just shocking because you've like learned the cello and I've done very little productive at all except I planted some tomatoes recently. You moved That's house. about it, yeah. <laughs> <sighs> But anyway, we're driving to Albany, so that'll be uh, yes. you know, that'll be a anyway. full assignment. <laughs> so um, keep an eye on the uh, group tomorrow. We'll keep you updated on our progress. And, I'm just, uh, I think yeah. this guy needs a little name. Oh, um, oh, so light and transportable too. We need to give a quick shout out to someone else in the audience. Oh, okay. So there's somebody else fabulous in the audience who's become a massive part of Chat Ten life just totally by accident over the last year or two. And it's Danny Dormatz. Where are you, Danny Dormatz? There she is. Stand up. Because I... <laughs> you, know that, you know that Gwen, our great friend and merch lunatic, during the lockdown was sort of like, oh, why don't we make doormats? I'm like... Well, because doormats are massively clumsy and impossible to like, what are you talking about? And she's like, no, 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 I'm just going to look into it. So she went on there, some group for like small business women, right? And she's like, does anyone make doormats? And Danny's like, I make doormats, a bit short of work right now though. (laughs) So not anymore. This poor woman is absolutely sick of printing Well Hello Doormats. And we obviously knew nothing because it has been the most popular thing that we've ever done. So thank you, Danny, for (laughs) looking after everyone. Turns out the world wants doormats and it's an inexhaustible demand. They just keep going as quickly as she can make them. Oh, my God. How's your bum, love? Well, I... I just like as the time ticks by, Look, I'm thinking I, 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 I'm taking you know the amount of time we've been on stage is a complete victory, and I don't want to push my luck. <laughs> <laughs> Can I thank you all for coming out in such enthusiastic numbers? And thank you. Putting out with. <laughs> thank you, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Lee Sales and her gastroenteritis. <laughs> We've actually devised a whole new format this evening, Gastro Entertainment! Woo! (laughs) Thank you very much for having us, Perth. See you in Albany if you're coming.